Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 272, The End of the Age of Athelflaed. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Colin, David, and Rita for signing up already. Trying to tell the story of Athelflaed is a bit like trying to study gravity. We know her indirectly by the impressions that she left and the political shifts that happened around her. We can see the impact that she left both on her lands and in the devotion of her subjects. And so in many respects, we know Athelflaed through her shadow. And the size and strength of this shadow and the military feats that we get glimpses of seem to far outstrip the picture of Athelflaed that's painted in the Chronicle, especially the picture that's painted in the copy made in Wessex during the reign of her brother, Edward, which essentially paints no picture at all. But the fact that we're able to do this, the fact that we know the name Athelflaed today, and we know her to have been a power in her own right, even though the kingdom of her father seems to have tried to downplay her rule, tells me that she was truly a heavyweight. And for the last few years, she'd been getting stronger. But despite her influence, we can't escape the fact that much of what she's been doing is likely left out of the record. And so instead, we have to study her through the impact that she left. And one of the places that she left some of the biggest impacts was at Chester. And it's through studying the story of Chester that we can get one of the clearest pictures of Athelflaed and her power and skill as a ruler. It was at Chester where we saw the Irish sources referring to Athelflaed as Queen of the Anglo-Saxons. And it was there where her fight with the Danes first truly began, and she began her remarkable winning spree. Even more importantly, Athelflaed, much like her father, didn't see her role as merely a military one. Once she secured victory over the Danes, Athelflaed redeveloped Chester, and put it on the road to becoming an economic and social power in its own right. In previous decades, Chester, formerly the old Roman settlement of Deva, had become essentially a ghost town. The infrastructure, what was left of it, was ruinous. And it was so abandoned that when Haston and his Danish army came there to shelter for the winter, they were able to move in without a fight. But historian Simon Ward went to excavate Chester, and what he found was signs of growing prosperity during the reign of Athelflaed. Infrastructure had been rebuilt, economies were picking back up, and people were suddenly living there again in significant numbers. Much like Alfred and Athelred revitalized towns with the construction of burrs and other large-scale projects, it seems that Athelflaed was following suit. Ward concluded that much of the early resurgence of activity at Chester and its growing economic importance was owed to the careful planning laid down by Athelflaed. And this didn't end with her reign. Her construction and reform efforts meant that the town would continue to rise in wealth and status. So despite what appears to be a deliberate effort to write her out of the record, Athelflaed's influence was strong enough that she continued to have an impact even after her death. However, she's not dead yet, and she still has things to do, so let's get to that. 917 was a year marked by war, 
Both of Alfred's elder children had been incredibly active, seizing massive portions of land from the Danes and successfully beating them in battle after battle. However, the Chronicle only focuses on one of Alfred's children, Edward. All the detail that it provides about these victories is actually only about his victories. The only material that we get about Athelflaed comes from the Mercian Register. Version A of the Chronicle ignores it. But in the Register, we hear of how Athelflaed spent about half of the campaigning season taking the Danish borough of Derby, which was no small feat. After all, Derby was one of the famed five boroughs. However, when we look at the wealth of detail that we get about Edward's East Anglian conquest, it's kind of odd that we have to go to another source to find out that Athelflaed obtained Derby. And the fact that it just tells us that she obtained the borough leaves a lot to be desired. Furthermore, we don't really know what she was up to for the rest of the year. Even if she was single-mindedly engaging in the siege of Derby, that siege ended by August 1st. So what happened next? Edward was active into November. So where was Athelflaed? We don't know. But what happens in 918 gives us a hint. Because that year opens up with a bang. The first thing that the register tells us is that in the early part of the year, Athelflaed obtained the borough of Leicester. Now, Leicester was one of the five boroughs, but it's a bit more important than that because it wasn't just one of the five boroughs. This was the most warlike of the boroughs. It's repeatedly sent armies into Mercia and Wessex. Time after time, it sought to engage directly in battle with the Anglo-Saxons. But here, in early 918, and judging from the rest of the entries for that year, it seems like this was the first event of 918, that bellicose borough suddenly came under Anglo-Saxon control. And not just anyone's control. Leicester wasn't obtained by King Edward. No. Like Darby, Leicester became a territory of Athelflads. And that right there is significant. And it's made even more interesting by what they say, or rather don't say, in version A of the Chronicle. Because they don't say anything. And this is actually nothing new for version A. I mean, version A's account of 917 was mostly what we covered in the last episode, where we heard about all those gains that Edward made, often in great detail. But what we didn't hear of was anything involving his sister. Not a damn thing, even though she had just conquered Darby in the first portion of the campaigning season. That was ignored. In fact, Darby itself is completely ignored. One of the five boroughs falls, and version A just says nothing. And here in 918, the Chronicle's doing it again. Lester falls, and version A of the Chronicle is once again silent. So if you're only to read version A, you would be entirely unaware that Darby and Leicester had been conquered and taken by the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms in a mere matter of months. But what you would know about was King Edward's campaigning season, like down to where he decided to camp. And the thing is that cherry picking often happens with this chronicle, and many times the scribes decide to include or not include things based on what they think is important. So you'd be forgiven if you wondered if maybe Darby and Leicester simply were minor victories that didn't warrant the Anglo-Saxon front page. But they did. Those were two major boroughs that had just been obtained. And considering how Leicester came under Athelflaed's control, they're even more important. Because the Mercian Register says, quote, she peacefully obtained the borough of Leicester in the early part of the year, end quote. 
Did you catch that? Peacefully. Now, kingdoms, boroughs, even tiny villages almost never go down in this period without a fight. But suddenly, Leicester, the center of military operations in the Danish-occupied south, submitted peacefully. And you might be thinking, well, yeah, obviously they would. 917 was a horrible year for the Danes. That was the best option they had. But keep in mind that a lot of the material the Chronicle tells us about 917 involves Edward's activities in East Anglia and the eventual conquering of Northampton, which the Chronicle also says was the work of King Edward. And then all of a sudden, in the face of all this work by mighty King Edward, who was Athelflaed's supposed overlord, Leicester submits to Athelflaed? If it was a response to Edward's advances, why didn't it submit to him? I mean, the Chronicle says that Edward had just taken one of Leicester's staunchest allies, Northampton. But then they went to Athelflaed, and they did it peacefully. It really does feel like we're missing part of the story here, doesn't it? And get this, it wasn't just that Leicester submitted to Athelflaed in 918. We're also told that along with the borough came, quote, the greater part of the army which belonged to it, end quote, meaning that most of the soldiers of Leicester joined her army. Not Edwards, Athelflaed's. And then, after Leicester submitted to Athelflaed, the Chronicle starts giving us details of what Edward was up to. We're told that Edward gathered his army and marched upon Stamford and built a burr there. And then after constructing the burr on the south side of the river Welland, and probably fighting off any forces that were mustered to prevent its construction, Stamford, including the settlement on the north side of the river, submitted to Edward sometime between May 11th and June 24th. Now the timing of this is really interesting once you realize where Stamford is located. See, Stamford's position on the River Welland made it an important strategic location for controlling the waterways into Mercia. And some historians also point out that it's close to the Danish-occupied boroughs of Lincoln and Nottingham. But here's the thing. Darby and Leicester were much closer to Nottingham than Stamford was. Furthermore, it wasn't all that much closer to Lincoln than Darby or Leicester were. So functionally, it would be just as easy, or maybe even easier, to march on either of those boroughs from Derby or Leicester than it would be from Stamford. And yet Edward is building a fortress there. And if it wasn't for the timing, I'd probably ignore this. But the thing is that Edward conquered Stamford after Athelflaed took Leicester. And here's the thing. The place that Stamford was closest to the place where it'd be easiest to launch an attack for the place to snatch territory from, wasn't Danish-occupied Nottingham or Lincoln. Stamford was closest to Leicester, Athelflaed's Leicester. So at the same time that version A of the Chronicles seems to be pretending that Athelflaed was at home knitting, Edward was building a burr on the edges of Athelflaed's newly conquered border territory. And there's something else that catches my eye with this. At around the same time that Edward was busy in Stamford, Athelflaed was focused on the north, far to the north. The Mercian Register tells us that at around this point, quote, the people of York promised her, and some had given pledges, some had confirmed it with oaths, that they would be under her direction, end quote. York just joined Team Athelflaed. 
So Darby, Leicester, and Wales are subject to Athelflaed and Mercia, and now Jorvik, the functional capital of Danish-occupied Northumbria, had also just pledged themselves to follow her rule. Athelflaed had cracked it. Suddenly Northumbria was coming under the Anglo-Saxon umbrella. That's huge. So surely, version A of the Chronicle would have to acknowledge this, right? Wrong. That incredibly chatty version of the Chronicle that happened during Edward's 917 campaign abruptly comes to an end, and we abruptly return to sparse, detailless entries in 918. And considering all that's happening, it's clearly not for lack of subject matter. So according to version A, the only thing of import that happened in the early summer was Edward building at Stamford. That was it. That's all that's happening. Definitely nothing is happening in Jorvik. But there is one small ray of light. At long last, after years of entries that have explicitly ignored her, version A finally mentions Athelflaed. They tell us that shortly before midsummer, which would have been after Athelflaed obtained the submission of Jorvik, Edward and his army went to visit her at the Mercian capital of Tamworth. And who doesn't like a summer family reunion? And what better time to celebrate their individual and shared victories over the Danes than throwing a midsummer feast with your ass-kicking sibling? It sounds like a great plan. And then, 12 days before midsummer, while Edward and his army were staying in Tamworth, Athelflaed died. And Edward, with his army, occupied the Mercian capital of Tamworth. Now, this series of events could be completely innocent. After all, medieval medicine wasn't exactly what we consider advanced, and things can happen pretty fast. But Athelflaed was about 35. And up until her brother's visit, she at least looked healthy enough that multiple Danish territories pledged their fealty to her and dedicated their armies to her command. And then, right at the height of her power, right when she likely had enough military might to challenge just about anyone on the island directly, including her brother, Edward visits. And then she dies while he's in town. And then he has his army occupy the town. That doesn't look good. And the strangeness of how this all played out could account for the divergence in the accounts for this period. And not just the way that Athelflaed was written out of version A, but also in the way that same chronicle discusses what happens next. The chronicle says that after Edward occupied Tamworth, quote, all the nation in the land of the Mercians, which had been subject to Athelflaed, submitted to him. And the kings in Wales, Huel, Clydog, and Idwal, and all the race of the Welsh, sought to have him as lord, end quote. So if you're keeping track, that's King Huel ap Cadal of Divid, King Clydog of Poes, and King Idwal ap Anarod of Gwyneth. So we're seeing two grandsons of Rodri and a Clydog ruling over Wales. And apparently, their alliance was so strong that it survived, even though Cadal, Anarod, Athelred, and Athelflaed were all dead. But a few things about this. First, the subtext that the Chronicle seems to be admitting to with this entry is that Mercia and their allies weren't subject to Edward until this moment. It says that the lands of the Mercians, which was subject to Athelflaed, submitted to him. Well, that's interesting, considering the fact that Edward has been styling himself as King of the Anglo-Saxons, and has been saying that Athelflaed was merely a lady serving under him. The second thing that I find interesting 
is that that perspective isn't echoed in the Mercian Register. They make no mention of submission, no claim over Mercian lands, nor their allies. The Register simply states that Athelflaed died 12 days before midsummer, and that her body was buried in the East Chapel of St. Peter's Church in Gloucester. That's it. The third thing that jumps out to me is who's listed as submitting to Edward. So we've got the Mercians, and I'll assume that Darby and Leicester were included under the broad term of Land of the Mercians. And we also have the Welsh, and it's expressly stated that there were three kings that ruled over all of Wales. And while they are subject to Athelflaed, now they were agreeing to serve Edward. But did you spot who was missing? Where was Jorvik? Even if we take version A on faith and assume that all of the Mercians and Welsh immediately submitted to Edward, even though that's a view that's not echoed by the Mercian register, even then, Edward apparently didn't hold sway over Jorvik because their deal with Athelflaed was apparently with her exclusively. So what's going on? Well, it's hard to say, but one thing to keep in mind, and it's a drum I've been beating repeatedly in this episode, is that version A of the Chronicle is as pro-Edward as it is uninterested in Mercia. Furthermore, version A talks about the reign of Edward as an easy catalog of wins and construction, but that might not be what was actually happening on the ground. It might have been a bit more messy than that. And then there's the additional matter of Athelflaed's heir, Aelfwyn. Do you remember her? She was the daughter that we've been seeing up to this point in Charters, which suggests that she might have been raised in court the way her mother had been raised by Alfred. And the Mercian Register says that Aelfwyn was ruling with all authority upon her mother's death. Well, that's a problem. Especially since version A of the Chronicle completely ignores her and simply proceeds to talk about more of Edward's military accomplishments. We're told in kind of a matter-of-fact way that after the occupation of Tamworth, Edward marched on Nottingham, captured the borough, manned it, and then, quote, all the people who had settled in Mercia, both Danish and English, submitted to him, end quote. Case closed. And honestly, the Chronicle is a hair's breadth away from claiming that Edward's army was greeted as liberators. But can we really take version A at face value here? especially when we have a competing account that Elfwyn inherited her mother's authority and not Edward? Or more to the point, if Edward meant resistance, would version A of the Chronicle have fessed up to it? I get the sense that the Chronicle is trying to sell us a particular perspective here, one of an easy and resistance-free annexation. And the trouble with this is that I don't think they're very good at it because we see events later on in the Chronicle's own account that kind of undercut this story of glorious annexation. Because right on the heels of this entry, we're told things that sure sound like Edward wasn't secure in his dominion over Mercia and Wales. And this is where Chester comes back into our story. Because Ward didn't just conclude that Athelflaed was responsible for the revitalization of Chester. He also argued that King Edward sought to continue his sister's plans for Chester. But it looks like the people of Chester had other ideas. Late in the campaigning season of 919, just one year after King Edward claims to have acquired all the lands of the Mercians and Welsh after the death of his sister, we see the king and his army back in the field. And where he decided to march might tell us an important part of the story the West Saxon army advanced upon Thelwall, a small village on the River Mersey, 
just down the way from Chester. And the problem here is that Chester and the surrounding territory should have been his, at least according to Version A of the Chronicle. And yet here he was, just downriver from Chester, with a big-ass army building a burr, like he was facing off with the five burrows again. And while he was there, he also ordered a second army to be raised and commanded them to occupy and reinforce Manchester. It's odd, isn't it? And if you take Version A's word for it and believe that Mercia and Wales immediately submitted to Edward after the occupation of Tamworth, then King Edward's sudden militarization around Chester seems like it comes out of left field. But the scribes leave us a few breadcrumbs. First, the chronicle explicitly states that the second army, the one that took Manchester, was comprised of Mercians. And it's interesting that they draw that distinction, considering that Edward has been styling himself as king of the Anglo-Saxons, and he had just annexed Mercia. So with that in mind, you'd think that all of his soldiers would just be West Saxons, or Anglo-Saxons, or whatever. But here we have his account saying, oh, but this army occupying Manchester was specifically Mercian. Which suggests to me that something more might be going on here. And I think the decoder ring for that entry, as well as for the rest of what's going on in 919, comes out of the Mercian register. The register says that three weeks before Christmas, in 919, so about 18 months after her mum died, and critically, shortly after Edward's military campaigns in northwest Mercia, we're told that Aelfwin, quote, was deprived of all authority in Mercia and was taken into Wessex, end quote. Marching upon Thelwall and Manchester makes a lot more sense if those territories were in rebellion. And it would explain why the scribes thought it was important to note that the occupying forces sent by Edward were comprised of Mercians. And then all of this seems to culminate in Elfwyn's capture, her transport back to Wessex, and then her immediate disappearance from all records. And that happens right on the heels of these military activities. I think the story that the Chronicle might be trying to hide is one of civil war. With some Mercians siding with Edward and submitting to him, while others rallied under Athelflaed's daughter, Elfwyn. And Chester in particular might give us a window into the depth of loyalty that some parts of Mercia held for Athelflaed. Because as we're going to cover in later episodes, Edward will continue to experience staunch resistance out of Chester for the rest of his life. And that suggests to me that the people of Mercia saw something extraordinary in Athelflaed, so much so that they remained loyal to her and even her family, even after her death. But there's another potential explanation for resistance to King Edward's annexation. Namely, political uncertainty. And historian Simon Keynes discussed exactly this issue in one of his articles. See, when we think of monarchs, we often think of someone with defined boundaries of power that were largely constrained to equally well-defined geographical boundaries. And it's all too easy for us today to extend that idea of monarchy into the end of the Anglo-Saxon era. But what we imagine monarchy to be is built on a model that wasn't set in stone. It hasn't always existed. As we move out of the era of the Heptarchy and into the era of England, we're seeing political boundaries go through tremendous flux. And not just political boundaries. The concept of what a monarch is is also going through a lot of changes. All these things are being experimented with and altered. And as a result, the scope of rule can fluctuate wildly from one monarch to the next. 
With each succession, with each handing over of power from one monarch to another, there was the potential to trigger a cascading series of changes in power dynamics. All kinds of questions were being raised virtually every time a monarch died. Are agreements between kingdoms actually held between kingdoms, or are they just between monarchs? Does a kingdom's submission outlive its monarch? When an overking dies, does his heir inherit that overkingdom, or does the next eldest king in the hegemony become the overking? Many of these things might seem like they have easy answers, but for a lot of the rulers during this period, they were working it out on the fly. I mean, think back to how complicated this was just for the Kingdom of Wessex. When Alfred's father and grandfather were ruling over Wessex, it had only recently absorbed Kent, so they had to figure out what to do there. Do you consolidate entirely? Do you have local rulers? Do you install someone from your family as a local ruler? There's all different kinds of ways this could play out, and the way they decided to handle it was to have Egbert rule over one kingdom and Athelwolf rule over the other, with Egbert being the overking, essentially ruling over both. And actually, in Wessex, we saw that play out again and again. For example, after Egbert died, Athelwolf inherited the kingdom and divided it again. He ruled over Kent, while his son Athelbald ruled over Wessex. And when Athelwolf died, that scheme was still maintained, at least for a while. But we also saw sons of Athelwolf, including Athelbert, Athelred, and Alfred, choosing to rule over the whole combined kingdom rather than split it up. And so over time, we saw a vanishing of the Kingdom of Kent, or at least the concept of the Kingdom of Kent. It was just a territory, and its eldermen were eldermen, not kings. What we've been seeing have been individual decisions that led to an overall change in how people saw their place in the world. But none of these changes were foregone conclusions. They were all just being slowly worked out. And you can see a similar thing happening with the way rule was discussed. Alfred was the king of the West Saxons, at least mostly. He started talking about the Anglo-Saxons a little bit, but he was mostly the king of the West Saxons. But right out of the gate, Edward was styling himself as king of the Anglo-Saxons. He was signaling a new polity that, while it was hinted at by Alfred, wasn't formally and repeatedly asserted until Edward. And it was a political body that not everyone seems to have bought into. Edward was trying to create it, which required changing people's perspectives of who they are and what their place in the world was. And that's a difficult prospect. And with that in mind, looking at the resistance that Edward was facing out of Northwest Mercia, well, maybe they had a different motivator. They might have been fighting for local rule. They might have been taking the perspective that Edward was a foreigner, regardless of any of this Anglo-Saxon nonsense. And they wanted to be ruled by one of their own. And Elfwin was Mercian. It's possible. And personally, I suspect that it was a mix of all of it. Athelflaed clearly inspired loyalty. And I bet that motivated some people. Hell, in my mind, one of the biggest selling points for her influence are the alliances that she formed. When she died, her alliance with Jorvik died with her. It seems to me that there was something about her that clearly inspired people. But at the same time, xenophobia was also quite real, and Edward was fighting against centuries of animosity between the kingdoms of the Heptarchy. Convincing people that they shouldn't worry about being ruled over by a West Saxon because we're all Anglo-Saxons was a heavy lift, and I bet not everyone was on board. 
Honestly, I'm sure there were plenty of things that led the people of Northwest Mercia to rise up against Edward. But make no mistake about it, Edward had quite a fight on his hands, even after Elfwyn was captured and taken into Wessex. But these fights, and not just the battles, though they matter too, but also the fights over terminology and identity. These are the things that will ultimately give birth to the idea that there's a place called England. But England was a fragile idea that was far from guaranteed at this point in history. And the death of Athelflaed, right as she might have had the power to overthrow her own brother, demonstrates how contingent many of these ideas and political plays were. As Keynes points out, the people in Britain during this period were making it up as they went along. And King Edward, whether by his own hand or merely fate, was going to have to make it up all on his own now. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow us at British Podcast. And you can join all our other communities by going to the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'm really sorry about my voice. I'm fighting with a cold.